Hi, parents. It's Robin McMahon here. Thank you for listening to Parenting Our Future, which is in the top 0.5% of all podcasts worldwide. Before we dive into this episode, I want to invite you to join my membership site, The Parent Toolbox. You can join this membership for free. It's at www.parent-toolbox.com. And this is the companion site to my show, Parenting Our Future. In the Parent Toolbox, you will find game-changing tools and resources from both myself and my guest experts who are among some of the top minds in the parenting space. There are over 100 resources to help you navigate screen time, co-parenting, meltdown, teenagers, and so much more. Join today at www.parent-toolbox.com. Now back to the show. All right. We are diving right in to a topic that I absolutely love talking about, and that is sensory processing challenges. All of us have something that just makes our skin crawl. And what we're really talking about with this episode is when is, when are those challenges really a challenge and a diagnosis? And when are they just some sort of quirky things that you go through? So to help me navigate this topic, I have two beautiful experts that you are going to not just love listening to, you are going to love following and taking in their advice past this podcast. I promise you, you will love them. I already love them. So I have Rachel Harrington and Jessica Hill. They are two passionate certified occupational therapy assistants who answer your questions related to all things sensory, OT, parenting, self-care, nutrition, and health from a therapist's perspective. They provide raw, honest, fun ideas and strategies for parents and families to implement into daily life, which is great for those who work with children with sensory processing disorder, special needs, autism, ADHD, and neurotypical children. Their goal is to help everyone live happy, healthy lives and happy sensory-filled lives. So welcome, Rachel and Jessica. I am so, so excited to talk to you. Thank you. We're excited too. (laughs) And I will say too, you guys are moms, which is always, you know, yep. it's not a prerequisite, but it does help because you know what? We're all in it. We're all in it. Yes. <laughs> Rachel's in it the most. I'm just going to, oh my gosh, one-year-old, you are in it. So, uh-huh. yeah, which we'll probably hear all about my own sensory challenge. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that's a good way oh, to yeah. start. Okay. Okay. So <laughs> let's talk about what sensory processing disorder is and how it relates to autism. I just want to identify and understand sort of the two buckets and how they're different and how they are the same. Yeah. So sensory processing is really an umbrella term and it identifies how we process not only the messages inside of our body, but all of the messages coming in from the environment as well. And so it's kind of the it word kind of buzzword right now, at least I feel like it is just gaining in popularity. And it's really helpful to understand that we we have our five physical senses, but then we also have three hidden senses, which actually, I think, impact our body and how we interact with the environment so much more. We've got the vestibular system, the proprioceptive system, and interoceptive system, which help us identify body awareness, position in space. They impact balance, arousal level, emotional regulation. It really connects our body to the world that we're living in, and it it helps us whether we are oversensitive to certain input or we're craving sensory input 
it helps us figure out what input we need in order to feel best and to feel the most regulated throughout our day. Okay. Okay. So, okay. Can we, can we go through those again? So we've got vestibular, which is Mm -hmm. your sense of movement and body, not body awareness, but like position in space. Okay. So you have receptors in your inner ear and they tell us kind of where our body is, where our head is. It connects the visual auditory system as well. That's like in the space of the room, right? Yeah. And where your body is and how your body is moving in that space. Okay. And then the proprioceptive. So proprioceptive is very similar to vestibular in that it helps us understand where our body is in space, but this time the receptors are in our muscles and our joints and our tendons. So anytime our body moves, like we walk or we run, our proprioceptive sense is activated to tell us how our body is moving, where our body is moving, how much force we need to move. And then our proprioceptive sense is also related directly to our tactile sense. So anytime you give someone a hug, you're giving them a combination of proprioceptive and tactile input. So those two are very connected. Mm -hmm. And then an important thing to know as well is that vestibular input is typically alerting to our bodies. So you think about swinging or spinning or jumping, all of that vestibular input is typically alerting to you. Whereas proprioceptive input is the opposite. It's more calming to your body. And we like to call it the all calming sense. So we can use proprioceptive strategies to help us feel calm and regulated. Okay. Okay. So what I hear you saying is vestibular is like, um, yeah, how you're feeling in space, how you're, you're moving within the space, but the proprioceptive is the way we feel moving in our bodies. Yes. That's a great description. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Thank you. That's good to know. (laughs) Um, and then what's interoceptive? Yeah, so the interoceptive system is what's happening inside of your body. So those messages from your stomach and your skin telling you if you're too hot or too cold, if you have to go to the bathroom, if you're if you're full, if you're hungry, if you're sick, if you're tired. And so that's where we see it connected to our emotions and our emotional awareness as well. So it's a big, it's really connected to all of them. It's kind of the most uh, quote unquote recent since that we've kind of identified I honestly don't even remember learning about it in school so within the past nine years it's it's really come to uh just more attention and and uh more understanding of Mm. of what what it is and what it impacts yeah that's really interesting so you could be hypersensitive to swallowing or it could that be right Yep. Or you could struggle to know how to dress appropriately for the weather. So you always wear, you know, shorts in the wintertime or you wear sweatshirts in the summertime. I mean, you'll see kids out there who are like, we saw the other day, the kiddo with the hoodie on and the sweatpants and it's a hundred degrees outside. And you're like, whoa, bro. Like, yeah, you realize it's hot, you know? So that could be challenges with interoception or even knowing how much food to eat. Like you, maybe you constantly eat past when you're, when you should and maybe you get sick you know I always joke with my brother because as a kid he always would do that and now I'm like oh no you have poor interoceptive processing (laughs) how interesting and I said it wrong I said interoception but it's interoception interoception okay sorry about that but I'm glad you I'm glad we your accent probably just made it sound fine (laughs) 
you know, I like to think I don't have an accent, but I know I do. Yeah, yeah I, know, I know. It's fine. It's only when I say sorry that everyone is like, oh. I love it. And as a Canadian, I say sorry a lot. It's true. I really do. Oh. <laughs> okay, no, that's really, really, really interesting. So, okay, let me ask you about that kid wearing the hoodie on a 90 degree day. Is that kid hot? It's hard to tell. They uh, might they might not recognize that they are hot. So maybe they are overheating and they don't realize that they're overheating. I don't know how, because even just walking outside when it's hot and I'm like yeah. doing something, I'm like, I'm so overstimulated. It's hot. I can't. <laughs> totally. Oh, yeah, how it's hard, interesting. It's hard to know if he can recognize it or not. You know, it's so interesting because, you know, you're just saying that interoception is something that is fairly new. And uh, it's funny. I mean, all, all I ever grew up knowing is the five senses never mm-hmm. knew about vestibular Same. and proprioceptive. And, um, and it's so interesting because ever since I've learned it, it really is helpful to understand people and yourself and like, you know, people who chew on their pencils, it's because they're organizing their brain and they're organizing their thoughts. And like, how brilliant is that to know that? Uh, and and the purpose of my podcast is always to help parents understand their kids better so that they don't get triggered and angry and frustrated mm-hmm. that they understand what's driving behavior because it's not personal and it's not meant to drive you crazy even if it does and that might be yeah. sensory stuff that's driving you crazy which mm-hmm. is right so yeah. Rachel tell me about you what what is your oh, how uh, much time do we have story? Okay. Okay. (laughs) I've always been a little bit on the sensitive side, even as a kid, I remember. But after pregnancy, I really started to connect the dots and realized just how easily triggered I was specifically by noise and competing background sounds. If the TV's on, if someone's trying to have a conversation with me, if there's noise in the background, I'm like, I'm going to lose my mind. Now I have words for it. And I know that's what's happening. So I can better regulate. But even with like vestibular input, I used to get so motion sickness, um, just driving in the car on road trips. After pregnancy, I don't really get motion sickness. It's really weird. Well, pregnancy will do that to you. I mean, it changes everything and more. (laughs) Yes, yes. So those are a few things that I've noticed um, that I just, I just find it. And, you know, of course I've got all these other quirks too, but it's crazy to see how different my nervous system responds when I'm feeling like that fight or flight response, or even just on a Thursday afternoon, but pregnancy definitely did a number on me. Two back-to-back pregnancies too. Did a number uh. on me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I feel you sister. It's not easy. It's not easy. It's not. And not everybody is built the same way. Like some people can have three kids and it's no big deal. Others. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It kind of kicks our, kicks our butts. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything Jessica that you have to add from your own perspective that you want to, you know, share with us? Oh, well, I'm much more integrated and regulated than Rachel for (laughs) sure. Um, Give me five years. Okay. (laughs) No, I really like, this is like a quick story back before Rachel had her babies and we were therapists working in a clinic, working in a sensory integration pediatric clinic. And we were part of a sensory integration study, which was really cool experience. And one of the activities we had to do as part of the study was we had to 
um, spin each other on what we call an astronaut board. So it's a rotational board that you sit on and we had to spin each other a certain number of times, both directions. And, (laughs) and I remember after I got done being the one who was spun on the board, both directions, I felt, you know, maybe a little bit dizzy, but I had a pretty adapt, what we call an adaptive response, right? My body was able to process that input just fine. I had no problems. Even later in the day, I was totally fine. Rachel, we, you know, did her spinning. She felt a little dizzy afterwards, seemed like she was okay. But then she messaged us later on and said that when she was headed home, she felt terrible and she was really angry and didn't feel good. And so she actually had an adverse reaction to that spinning, that vestibular input later in the day. And I just think it's such an interesting story to showcase the different types of sensory systems we all have. We all have a unique sensory system and some of us might be more, you know, have easier time adapting to those sensory experiences than others. But it's so important for us to be aware that, you know, her anger that she felt later in the day was because of her challenges with that vestibular input. And as parents, as therapists, it's important for us to know that for our kids as well, to know that if they are struggling at some point in the day, like you already said, it's not because they're trying to come after us or be bad. You know, kids will do well when they can, but if something's off with their sensory system, it's going to affect their mood. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, Rachel, you said it now I have language for it and that's the key. Like our kids feel these things, but they don't understand it. They don't know how to deal with it and they can't articulate it. And so it comes out as behavior or, you know, a a meltdown or, or like big emotions, right. You know, uh, (laughs) them being oppositionally defiant, you know, all, all that stuff. Right. Um, And so that's so interesting. Now, let me ask you, can you take a vestibular and, and look, I don't know the language, but take Rachel's experience like that maybe would that be vestibular like overstimulation and mm-hmm. use a proprioceptive cure? So like a weighted blanket mm-hmm. might've been a nice thing for her. Is that mm-hmm. something? Yeah. So using like a proprioceptive strategy immediately after she did that vestibular input could have potentially helped her body organize all of that sensory input to provide a more adaptive response so that she didn't have that adverse reaction later. That would be the goal of us. Mm. You know, if it was a kid in a therapy session and we saw that adverse reaction, then the next time through, we would use a strategy afterwards to see if we could help their body process that input better. Mm. Okay. So, so thank you for that. That's, that's really neat. So you really just use the three of them together and, you know, kind of balance them all out. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, so let me, let's go back to this place where we talk about like quirks versus actually having sensory processing disorder. And then one step further is autism, right? That's, that's mm-hmm. where we're going. So at what point do you talk to a parent and say, okay, you know what? I think we should probably talk about getting your child assessed. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what, how does that show up? And I know that's a hard question to ask because I'm sure it shows up in many, many different ways. But if you can kind of give me an idea of like, how does that show up to help the the, the parents listening, if they're thinking that maybe their child has it, what are you looking for? Yeah, so really our biggest 
red flag, if you will, is can the child get through their daily activities successfully and independently? If they are struggling to get dressed every day and it ends in a knockdown drag out battle because of the texture of their pants or you put them in the wrong pants or they refuse to wear a certain type of pants or their socks were put on the wrong way and the seam is bothering them and they're melting down and it's taking hours to get out of the house, that would be concerning enough to say, okay, let's figure out, let's get to the bottom of this, let's get an assessment, let's see if we can help you. Whereas if they are wearing a certain type of pant and they make a comment like, oh, these pants are really itchy, you know, they're, the tag's bothering me, and then they can kind of move on, you can, you can much guesstimate that it's more of a sensory quirk and they're you know they noticed it but they had that adaptive response so we say that having that adaptive response is can they move past that noxious stimuli can they you know kind of regulate their their body independently so if it's impacting their ability to get through their day that is when it would warrant an evaluation i would say when in doubt rule it out if you're concerned at all it's not going to hurt to get an evaluation. I know wait lists are long right now, especially for OT. So it, it wouldn't hurt. There are some like more self-assessments online as well that we can refer you to as well. If you just want kind of a quick snapshot of your child's sensory preferences and that way you can identify if they're a little bit more seeking of vestibular input or maybe they're a little bit more avoiding vestibular input, then you can kind of tailor some activities and strategies to them. And based on their sensory preferences, that's not a standardized assessment, but at least gives you an idea of, oh, okay, this is why they're, they're freaking out every day because there's too much noise going on or the TV's too loud or whatever the, whatever the scenario is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I like that seeking or avoiding, right? Seeking or avoiding the input. Yeah. yeah. So for sensory modulation disorder, you have, you can be seeking, you can be avoiding the input, or you can be under responsive, which is kind of our bumps on a log. They need more input, but they aren't actively seeking out how to get that input. They're generally a little bit lower tone, a little bit on the chunkier side, and they get that rush from like video games. And so that's where they're getting that, in, that, that input that they're craving from things like video games rather than going out and, and moving, which is what their body actually needs, if that makes sense. Interesting. Interesting. And so that's, um, that would be one of the the red flags too, would you say? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Okay. That's really interesting. So, so, so if you're a parent and you're listening, and you, you have a child who you think maybe, maybe not, right? They're, you know, it's a spectrum, right? As they say. So, you know, it, it could be from really, really serious to, to manageable. Um, but what you say is that everybody can benefit from a healthy sensory lifestyle where we get input all the time. And so that brings me to occupational therapy, right? What you guys do. So as OTs, you will see kids, I assume on the whole spectrum, right? And, Mm -hmm. and so how is it that you help? What is it that you do that makes things better for them? Is it about strategies? Is it therapy? Is it helping parents? Like, what is it that you do to help live a better, happier, healthier life, like you say. It was literally everything you just said. So occupational therapy, the goal is to help the individual, the child in this case, 
go throughout their day successfully, to feel confident, to have the skills necessary to be as independent as they possibly can. And this is going to be different for every child. Some children are more independent than others based on, you know, physical disabilities or cognitive delays or anything like that. But the ultimate goal is to help these kiddos and their families get through the day successfully and for the children to have fun and play and have social interactions, feel successful at school, be able to do their daily life tasks like get dressed, brush their teeth, eat a meal successfully, go to the grocery store, everything that we do throughout the day, we want these kiddos to be able to do them as successfully and independently as possible. So for occupational therapy with kids in an outpatient pediatric clinic, which is where we have our experience, we use a lot of different tools to help build those skills for the children. But a lot of it is parent education and showing and teaching the parents how to carry over these strategies at home. Because, you know, I always use the example of going to the gym. You can't go to the gym once a week and expect to have really great results and changes, right? You have to do it several times throughout the week. It's the same with OT. The things that we're doing in occupational therapy, the strategies, the skills we're building have to be done more than just once a week. They have to be done at home, at school, in all of the environments where the child is living life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So, and, and I completely agree, you know, parents have to be a part of this too, right? It becomes mm-hmm. how you live your life, right? It just is. And I say this all the time to anyone who will listen is that parenting is the hardest job we do, the most important job we do, but we do it without really understanding things like the way the brain works, the way the sensory system works, how developmental stages really unfold. And this is all a part of it. So saying I need help and I don't know what's going on is not only normal and natural it's to be expected how else do we know this stuff you know and and as a parent you 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 get an honorary degree in all of the things that you never knew you needed to learn you know I mean I know so much about ADHD and as a parenting coach like I didn't set out to do that and I'm not a parent coach because I think I'm such a great mom at all (laughs) it's because I've been through the ringer right and I have a child that has is neurodiverse and so you learn what you need to learn when your kiddo needs it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I can relate on so many levels. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and so tell me the difference between ADHD and sensory processing disorder, because what we know is that often they're connected and ADHD Mm -hmm. usually brings a friend and it's not a nice friend. Um, As a mom who has a kid that has ADHD, plus a bunch of other things that have come come with it as comorbidities. Tell me how that works, because I think some parents, I think it's like ADHD is so hard, but it is also easy to dismiss it and to disrespect it because it's like, oh yeah, we hear it all the time and it's overdiagnosed yeah. and it's over uh, overprescribed medication, blah, blah, blah. But look, I'll tell you what, if you've got a kid with ADHD, it's very hard to parent them. So yes. So I know that was a really long question, but yes. No, I love that. That background is so helpful. I, uh, I often think Jessica, we, we, we often see kiddos come in maybe without a diagnosis and we always want to rule out sensory processing challenges first. We want to make sure that these sensory challenges aren't, you know, getting misdiagnosed as the ADHD because 
you know, when you first think of ADHD, it's like, oh yeah, this kid can't sit still. They're bouncing off the walls. They're all over the place. But ADHD is so much more than that. It's so much more of like an executive functioning disorder, more of that, you know, struggling with just those daily executive functioning tasks of planning and sequencing and um, and so we always like to unpack that first and, and make sure that we're providing sensory strategies to the child if ADHD is something that um, is a comorbidity or is a possibility. So we'll rule out the sensory system first, and then we'll start kind of diving into those executive functioning skills and, and really seeing how independent they are with packing their backpack, organizing their shoes, um, handling those non-preferred tasks and staying motivated. And, you know, another example of how much of a hot mess I am I went through the ADHD diagnosis myself at the beginning of the year because I'm like I'm struggling I cannot undo I can't organize my mail I can't keep track of this I can't keep track of this it was just so many things that were hitting me all at once and I'm like I wonder if this is what's going on long story short I I had symptoms of ADHD my life is you know causing these symptoms because of the lack of sleep with a newborn with an infant and and all these other factors but it's been so eye-opening for me personally to use these strategies that I would be using with my clients with ADHD myself and I feel like once I understood how they impacted me I feel like I can better help other people other adults other children with ADHD because it's like this whole new lens of it's, it's so much more than just not being able to sit still it's it's the sensory component. It's also a lot of primitive reflexes. And when those reflexes are retained, they can cause similar challenges like learning disorders and visual challenges that can also mimic ADHD. ADHD is just like this umbrella term that composes so many different aspects and there's so much to unpack there. It's, it, like you said, it, it gets misdiagnosed, it gets overprescribed, but like it's, like if a child needs medication, they need medication to, to function, you know, and, and I, I just feel like it, it's a whole team approach that needs to be included and, and everyone needs to be on the same page and, and open to trying things. But it's, it's a topic that I'm very passionate about it too. And I just find it so interesting to learn about. Well, and I think if I can add on to that really quick too, you know, exec, uh, ADHD is that executive functioning disorder. So it's in the brain. It's a neurological disorder, if you will. Right. But if you think about sensory processing, we process sensory input through our brain, not just our body, but those signals have to also go through our brain. So when we look at it, we can look at a child with ADHD who has executive functioning challenges because of those challenges in their brain, chances are their brains also not processing sensory input in an adaptive way to help them self-regulate. So I do think that so often ADHD is going to go hand in hand with SPD because their brain is not processing the things it needs to process in order to help this child be successful. So I think that they so often go hand in hand because Mm. of that. Definitely. Yeah. And I've seen it too, like an almost desperation to get sensory input, like seeking sensory input. And uh, it just, gosh, being a parent is so confusing. It's just so hard sometimes. Right. But that's why I said to everybody at the start that you're going to want to follow these guys. So I'm going to give you all their information. Don't worry to tell you where (laughs) to follow you guys, because it's, it's important to have people like you 
just around telling us what we need to know because we yeah. don't know. Um, okay, so um, I want to, I, I, I just want to ask, uh, you know, if somebody's worried about their child's behavior, um, can they just go to an OT? Do you have to have a diagnosis? Do you start with your pediatrician? Like, where do you start? You do start with your pediatrician, at least in the US. Okay. Um, you start with your pediatrician and you let them know, Hey, my child is struggling to get through the day. Can we get an OT eval? What we've experienced is that many pediatricians are open to it, especially if the parent has some background knowledge to say, Hey, my child is struggling with X, Y, and Z. I've heard about occupational therapy. Can I get a referral for an evaluation so we can see what we need to do next? Some pediatricians might push back. Sometimes we do see this, in which case we always recommend find a new pediatrician if possible. Don't ever stop pushing and advocating for what your child needs. You're the best advocate for your child. You know them best. So don't stop just because somebody says no. Um, but at least in the U.S., you do need a referral from your pediatrician to potentially get occupational therapy services covered by insurance. Okay. Okay. Uh, and what is it cost? It depends on insurance, but some people have co-pays where they pay, you know, 30 bucks a session. Some people have to do private pay and it's upwards of $120 per session. So it really depends on insurance and funding and so many different factors. And the, the OT eval, is that, is that a certain set of hours that you would put together? Is that, um, a a certain cost to, again, understanding it's different, Mm -hmm. but you know, the, the evaluation is usually a little bit more expensive. I'd say probably 200 to $300. We're occupational therapy assistants. So we don't perform the evaluations. We carry out the treatment plans. Um, so I would say generally around 300, but Hey, you know what? I just think it's great to have a ballpark. Like I think people, you know, need to hear like, is it thousands and thousands or is it hundreds? So that's the purpose of my question. Just for sure. I'm glad you asked. Yeah, no, thank you for, for the answer. And, and look, I'll tell you, um, you know, what, with your point, um, about like, maybe you need another pediatrician, you know, it, it took me 11, it took not me, us 11 years to get our son diagnosed with what we knew was going on with him. And, you know, it took a drastic measure for us to get the attention that we needed to. And look, we're in a different place. We're in a different country and system and and all that kind of stuff, but it's not that different. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you've got to fight. If you know, something is not right, you know, your kid better than anyone else. And And I say that to also say this, which is that we all have blind spots. And sometimes you do need someone to come along and say, hey, actually, have you thought about this? And that's happened to me too, where I'm like, wait a second. No, right. Like, and, and then the shame that comes with it, like, well, I should know, I should be able to, to notice this and be able to pick these things up, but we don't need help and support. It's okay. Right. Yes. I truly everything. No, we can't. And I truly believe that old saying of it takes a village to raise these kids. And I think it's so unfortunate that the way our world works right now, we are pushed towards being more independent and doing everything ourselves. When in reality, that's not best case scenario. Best case scenario is we have a team of 
professionals if we need them, but we have the support from family, friends, and community to ask questions, ask for help, ask for childcare when we need a break, you know, I mean, we can't do it alone and there's no shame in asking for help. And I think that when we do ask for help, we do our child a huge service because it only helps our child in the long run. Well, and they're the ones that pay the ultimate price because they have a mom or dad that's miserable, that is triggered, quick to anger, big emotions, all the things. And like, you know, Rachel, I don't mean to keep talking about your kiddos, but like having a two and a half year old and a one year old, like if you don't get help, because that's a big job and the sleeplessness alone, right? The just the lack of sleep, like I'm sure they're the cutest kids in the whole world. Oh, they are. Yeah. Yeah. Jessica. Yeah. I'm sure. Like, I'm sure they're adorable. Uh, and like enough, like (laughs) I need my body back. I need my mind back for a minute. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, you go through seasons, you go through phases where you're like, Oh, yeah, this is great. I'm doing good. And then, you know, like right now, none of the kids are sleeping. And you're like, what on earth am I going to do? How am I going to get through this? And you really have to like stop and be like, Okay, I have the strategies. I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to douse myself in essential oils. I'm going to go swing. I'm going to go work out. I'm going to use all these strategies that I would give a client. And I'm going to just regulate the heck out of my body and and hope that we make it through. Yeah. Well, and and I think you're both really lucky to have each other too, because Jessica, Mm -hmm. you have that nine-year-old and you, you know, you're able to be there and like, who wouldn't want to have you guys as friends? Seriously. It would be just so great. I mean, you're like the most popular people ever. You're so kind. (laughs) Okay. So I've got a couple of questions for you. I want your take on a couple of things. Um, So, so I want to talk to you about a couple of clients that I've had and some of the stories that I've heard. Um, And, and I, I, I'm going to tell you this one where it really alarmed me um, talking to one of my clients, uh, you know, and I love them all. They're just the most, most intentional, wonderful parents and humans. And I remember this one um, mom and I talking about how her son would run through the house sort of with his arms spread out and just like running and running and like wild all over the place. When he got mad, he would destroy things. And I was like, maybe there's a sensory issue there. Like, I think something sensory is going on. What do you say about just hearing that little bit? I know maybe that's not fair. I'm not asking you to diagnose, but I'm just curious anecdotally how, what, what you would say about something like that and what you've seen. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. My first thought is he's probably a sensory craver. So he has high sensory needs. He needs more input than, you know, the child next door maybe. And so he, because of this, it also causes him to have even bigger emotions. And so when he does get frustrated, it comes out even bigger than we would expect. And so he would be a kiddo that we would want to provide lots of sensory input to lots of swinging, lots of deep pressure, lots of heavy work, jumping and crashing, lots of climbing, And then we would also work on a lot of emotional intelligence with him and identifying his emotions when he's happy and identifying that these specific activities help him feel good in his body so that when he does start to get frustrated, he can try to use those strategies to help. Yeah. Yeah. And just, and just piggybacking on that too. One really critical element of sensory integration is 
meeting the threshold. And so for a kiddo who is craving a lot of input, we like to make sure that we're meeting that sensory threshold because their their behavior is communicating something to us and their their body is saying, I need more input. So they're acting out in a way to, to try to meet that threshold. So if we go into a child who has a high sensory threshold and we're like, let's put a weighted blanket on you. Let's calm down. Let's try to do some yoga. It's not going to work. We have to give them the input that they're seeking. So like Jessica mentioned, all those activities, once they've, they've hit that input and they've hit that threshold, then we're going to incorporate more of those proprioceptive based activities, those calming and organizing activities to, to kind of reset their nervous system. So it's just a really helpful thing to remember of like, if you're seeking input, give them that input in an organized kind of like circuit manner and then provide that calming input to bring them back down. Mm. Okay. So meet the sensory need first and then, um, and then give them the calming. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, so what about, what about when you have a family and you've got one really loud ADHD kid that might be doing some sensory seeking as well. And this is the, the, the beautiful kiddo that we love so much and he's kind of driving everybody crazy including the siblings which creates a lot of conflict between them and between mom and dad like mom why is it okay for him to do that and not me why is why do you let him do that and why does he get to get away with that and I'm not allowed to like how do you like when one here's what I know for sure is that like I talk about my son having OCD well it is a family diagnosis. It's not just mm -hmm. one person, right? We all have to understand it and navigate it together so that we don't do family accommodations. We don't make it worse and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and sort of lean into the OCD and, and let it take over, right? We need to fight mm -hmm. it too. So, but we don't know, we didn't know all those things at the beginning. So yeah. How do you navigate that with a family? I would say my go-to, my first thing that I would do is, you know, sit down and talk about everyone's brains. Talk about how everyone <laughs> processes the world differently. Everyone's brain is unique. Some people like chocolate ice cream, some people like vanilla ice cream, but also some people need more sensory input and some people need less sensory input. So I feel like the siblings and the family will be a little bit more understanding initially of like, okay, well, Johnny needs more input. That's why he's acting this certain way. So maybe the siblings could help him meet that threshold. They could help him if he needs to swing for 10 minutes before he sits down at the dinner table, then maybe they, they swing him and they help him get that input. And instead of it being a burden, it's more of like, let's see if we can help Johnny to get that input that he needs. If he's, if he's bothering us, if he's making all this noise, okay, well, maybe Johnny's seeking some auditory input. So Maybe we can turn on some music and have a dance party. So almost shifting that perspective of he's annoying us, he's obnoxious, um, he's a burden to how can we take the brain structure and and turn it into play and activities and, and kind of connecting them all together. So that's my first thought. Hmm. You know, it's almost like we could use a calendar of like things to do every single day that would help, huh? A sensory calendar? A sensory <laughs> calendar. Yeah. Like, I don't know, where you work on auditory things one day and fine motor skills and tactile things. Wait, just wait idea. one second. <laughs> In fact, 
fact, you have to keep calm and take a sensory break, sensory guide calendar that we have in the parent toolbox. It's so good. It's so good. I just had to blurt it out because I'm looking at it here. Like you've got ways to activate the vestibular and proprioceptive um, systems, the auditory um, you've got like obstacle courses, you've got uh, bilateral coordination, visual. Um, oh, okay, sorry. I don't know how to say this word. Uh, do you know the word I'm talking Som about? Somatosensory. 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 Okay. Um, and, and what is that? Anyone? <laughs> So, not at me. It's not at you. I'm laughing with it. you. I I can never say that word right. So I'm glad no, Rachel did. Like, word. I'll take this one. I was gonna let Jessica talk for once, but um, somatosensory is is kind of you know a simple way of doing of explaining it is you know completing an activity with our vision occluded or blindfolded. So really working on the proprioceptive system and the tactile system. So if we're doing a an activity blindfolded, maybe we're grabbing a letter out of a sensory bin uh, full of beans or rice. We have to try to identify what it is just by feeling. We have to identify where our body is in space just without the use of vision. Interesting. Okay. I love it. So you have an entire calendar of things to do every day. And I would say rinse and repeat because there, it is a wealth of, of things to do with your kids and they're fun. And what I mean by that is like transfer M&Ms from one bowl to another by sucking them up through a straw and moving them one side to the other side. Right. And, and yeah. so some of the things that I've learned through the years I've done this podcast and I've been a parent coach is, you know, like, having your kids activate their different senses to calm them down, like nuts and something crunchy or sucking through a straw, right? That deep pressure hugs, like the big, big squeezy, squeezy hugs. And Jessica, you mentioned heavy work, like actually carrying something heavy calms you down. And I talk about this OT that used to work in the schools here. And um, he had this box of like nothing. It was just heavy stuff inside this Rubbermaid tote. And he tell, you know, one class, hey, you know, or a child from one class to go to the office and get the get the bin and then uh and for no reason other than this kid needed to regulate right and then they would bring that bin from the office to the class and then he tells someone else oh hey can you get that from Miss so-and-so's class and take it to the office right so this bin just That's traveled awesome. to school you know but it just was that calming thing so there's some fun creative things that you've come up with here that will really help and in those moments of meltdown which is what lead, which is the inevitable result, right? If you're not getting your sensory needs fulfilled, met, uh, addressed, then our kids don't know how to deal with it, how to talk about it, right? Articulate it. And they don't know, uh, they, they don't know what to do. So that meltdown is a pressure valve for them. Mm -hmm. So we, you know, these things like a big squeezy hug, like what, what, what kind of things do you say to help a meltdown? will really help. Do you want to take that one, Jessica? Yeah, I was going to. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> <you>. <laughs> um, well, we like to talk about it from a proactive standpoint. So yeah. instead of saying, okay, my kid's in a meltdown, what do I do? We want to say, what can we do throughout the day to help the child have a regulated nervous system Love versus it. just waiting until they melt down, right? 
So when your child is happy and in a calm place, you can do some of these sensory activities and identify the emotions that they feel during these activities and then create like a sensory toolbox that your child can use throughout the day, but also when they do start to feel a little overwhelmed or a little bit out of control. And, you know, we use the term sensory diet a lot, and this is really those sensory activities that help your child meet their sensory needs, meet their sensory threshold, help them feel good throughout the day. And you rinse and repeat, you do them every day, you do them throughout the day. Sometimes it might change because every day is a little bit different. You know, maybe you didn't get a lot of sleep last night. So you need a little bit more than you did yesterday. So you do have to adjust and modify throughout the days. And as your child gets older, you might have to readjust those sensory diet activities as your child grows and changes and hormones take effect and all that kind of stuff. But ultimately from those sensory meltdowns, we want to proactively take those steps to meet their sensory needs throughout the day Hmm. and have those sensory strategies available for when they are having a meltdown because all kids are going to have meltdowns. I don't, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, I talk about my kid a lot. He's neurotypical. Um, he's a little bit on the sensory seeking side, but it's more of a sensory quirk. He still has some, you know, meltdowns sometimes. So it's inevitable. So we just want to be able to have those strategies in place for when they do meltdown. Yeah. I mean, totally. You're never going to get rid of them. And I love that what you're saying is like an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? Essentially. And, and having those outlets for your kids or those inputs for your kids as part of their regular day is what it was, what I'm hearing you say. And, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the things that, you know, um, when I look back, you know, we were really good about having toys around and lots of stuff around, but we also really wanted to keep the house clean all the time too. And I think, you know, that might be something you want to maybe let go of a little bit and have a swing and have, you know, some different things like a turntable where kids can spin around and, you know, different things like that. Cause it does really help. And it's just a season, you know, like, as we say, right. Where it doesn't always have to be that way, but like having that, you know, a happy kid is, is, like, uh, you know, coming from a place where I've had an unhappy kid. Whoa, nobody's happy. You know, nobody's happy when your kids are only, yeah, you're only as regulated as your least regulated person in a family. Yeah. Yeah. Like Dr. Phil says, you're only as happy as your saddest child, right? That's, you know, same thing. Yeah. So that's, that's all so helpful. And so where can people find you so that they can follow you like I do and um, take in all of the delicious advice and, uh, and thoughts that you have, where, where can everybody find you? So we hang out on Instagram, our business Instagram, the podcast Instagram is all things sensory podcast. And then our product page, our sensory product page, uh, digital courses, you can find those at Harkla underscore family because we are a big family. Um, I share my sensory overwhelm, my mom life uh, at the Sensory Project 208. Um, so we just, we're, Instagram is like the, the hub and then you can find everything else, everything else there. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's great. Look, I'll tell you right now that it's so great to have people like you who are OT assistants, but who are in it working with families and also have found some products too. Uh, That's really great. I'm always on the lookout for some great products. 
to recommend to my clients. So oh, yeah. knowing that they come from you is great because there's a sea of stuff out there. So, oh, there's so much. Yeah. So, so that's fantastic that you have that. And your website is uh, harkla.co. So um, yeah, that's, that's you guys. And listen, this sensory calendar is so good. It's at the parent toolbox. You know, that's www.parent-toolbox.com. That's where everything lives. There'll be a copy of this episode there. You can watch us on YouTube at Parenting for Connection. And uh, of course, iTunes, Spotify, we are on all of the places, as would your podcast be as well. All Things Sensory Podcast. That's so phenomenal. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all that you are doing. And before I let you go, is there any last thing that you want to tell any parents listening? I'm going to go to you, Jessica, first, and then to you, Rachel, and then we'll sign off. Sounds good. Um, I think mine is more for the parents that, you know, we talked a lot about our kids and our kids' nervous system and helping our kids regulate, but also we want to make sure that we as parents are using sensory strategies to keep ourselves regulated as well. And so finding out what works for you, is it a walk in the middle of the day? Is it a workout first thing in the morning or the evening? What sensory strategies do you use? And we do have some, um, podcast episodes on this as well of like strategies for adults but ultimately if you are able as the parent to use these strategies to help yourself stay regulated you're better able to help your child stay regulated and you're also modeling using strategies to your child and when our children can watch us use strategies they're more likely to use them as well love it yep I would say mine is to empathize, empathize with your child who is struggling. Once you can put your mind or your body in their shoes, you know, that feeling of the nails on the chalkboard, like it gives you shivery. If you can start to understand and like really grasp that, like they're not being naughty, they're really struggling to process the sensory input. You can empathize, you can help them so much more. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for that. I really love the the self-care piece and you're so right. Our kids don't do what we say. They do what we do. So us doing these things as well, they're certainly not going to hurt. They feel good yeah. and we're all wired for them to, to help us. So that's fantastic. Thank you so much, Rachel and Jessica. Harkla.co is where you guys are. And of course on Instagram, Harkla underscore family. I just want to say it again because it's just so helpful. Thank you for all you do. And thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to this edition of my podcast, Parenting Our Future. I'm parent coach Robin McMahon. And if you're enjoying this podcast, I would love it if you would share it with someone who you think needs to hear this message too. And please don't forget to subscribe. And if you like my work, I would be grateful if you gave me a five-star rating. And if you like my content and want more, please visit my site, parentingforconnection.com, where you can find out more about my coaching, my courses, and all things parenting. Until next time, I am wishing you and your family peace, connection, and joy.